Acts chapter 4. No other name. Now, remember, as we get into this, there are no chapter breaks or verse markings in the original. This is a continuation of exactly, I mean, it it just flows right from the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. The reason is a chapter break is the scene shifts. <laughs> because the guys have been there. Uh, remember, Peter and John had gone at the ninth hour of the day, about 3 in the afternoon, to the gate, or through the gate beautiful to enter the temple area. And there was a lame guy that had been lame since birth. He couldn't walk. <laughs> and as they uh, as they encountered this guy, rather than just blow him off as, a, as somebody that was begging alms and all, they they essentially uh, encountered him. And Peter said, "You know, gold and silver have I none, but uh, but I will give you what I do have." And and he commands this guy to stare at him. To he says, "Look at us. Look at me." He says, "In, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." And then he reaches down and he ties the guy onto his feet. So as a result, a crowd of people see this guy that they knew he we're told here in chapter four that he's 40 years old. So if he'd been lame since birth, you this, this guy's been around. They knew they would have known that he then they probably knew his name and all. Uh, but it was indisputable what had taken place. And so this guy's dancing around. He's leaping around. And a crowd begins to take notice, and they say, yeah, isn't that the guy that's on the ground? And and then I mentioned before that a crowd sees the crowd, and then the crowd sees the crowd that sees the crowd. And pretty soon, uh, <laughs> there's a mob. Remember, I've talked about this, uh, what a flash mob is. And this is a flash mob. This is a bunch of people that very quickly, news just flashes through the crowd that there's something spectacular that has gone on. And so uh, Peter, uh, there it says that they're there at Solomon's portico, which is a line of, uh, it's a columned area that ran the whole flank of uh, the eastern uh, side of the Temple Mount. Lots of room there, lots of, of room for lots of people. Thousands of people by the end of this thing are paying attention. Peter launches in. He says, well, hey, here we go. Uh, we've talked about that with miracles and, and their purpose is to attest to the one, to the miracle maker. And he essentially gets this crowd and, and he says, look, you guys murdered the Messiah. He doesn't mince words. And then he goes on, he tells him, he said, I, I understand you did it in ignorance. You thought you were doing the right thing. But that doesn't let you off the hook. He says, therefore, repent. He says, change your mind about God. Change your mind about Messiah. He says, be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Interesting wording there. We talked about that. And essentially, it's the same thing that Paul talks about in Colossians, where he says that our sins have been wiped out. The, the, the certificate of decrees against us wiped out. It means to wipe it clean. And so that's what's going on. That's the background here as we get into chapter 4. I'm going to back up a couple of verses and read the the last two verses in chapter 3 for context. Chapter 3, verse 25, he says, You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says to you first, 
meaning to the Jews, uh, having raised up his servant Jesus, talking about the resurrection, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So he plainly tells them in verse 26 that it's God's purpose and all of this was to bless them. We, that's how we closed last time, two weeks ago, when we finished up chapter 3. And, and folks, I want to encourage you again. Um, God's purpose is to bless. Uh, his purpose as we come this morning is to bless. As we open his word, to bless. Uh, he's not a demanding, extracting God that, that just lays it out. Yeah, there are difficult times that we go through. There are things that we have to deal with, especially when it pertains to our own sin, attitudes of the heart. I also want to talk about, too, one of the potential, potential trappings of, of the style of church that we do here. As we study God's word, we go through it verse by verse and book by book, is we can slip into dogma. Dangerous. That's when our studies and our quest for knowledge, good as that is, uh, they become an end, sort of become an end unto themselves. Uh, the dangers are very real. Leaders in Jesus' day had, uh, they'd succumbed to the trappings of religious dogma. They knew the word of God really well. But they'd become dogmatic. It had become dead religion to them as opposed to a pathway to life. Dogma, as subtle as it can be, will absolutely suck the life out of a believer because it draws us away from the purpose of our studies. Uh, the absolute fact is that we exist for fellowship with God. Often over the years I've said, well, what were we created for to people? And it's kind of a trick question, but not really. I mean, I just want to get people to think and, and often the response is, well, we're created to serve God. And my, my response is, no, no, no. We're created for fellowship with God. Why? Because he wants to bless us. Out of that fellowship comes effective service. Don't get me wrong. I was talking about the children's ministry and the great need we have. But you know, I want people that as a response to the grace that we've been shown, as a response to the understanding that I have to now want to serve the Lord out of the abundance of my heart. In Jesus' day, as I said, these guys had, they had fallen into that. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, knowledge in and of itself puffs up, but love edifies. And the word edifies there is an interesting word. It's where we get the term edifice, which is a building. So essentially he's saying, it's a word play here. He says, not knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, see, he's talking about the difference between knowledge as an end to itself, dogma, becoming dogmatic, versus the love of God. That's what it should be. If anyone loves God, this is one who is known by God. So I want to encourage you, let your studies in the word be a rich springboard into greater understanding of his blessings and of the love of God. That's the end that we want to achieve. It, 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 I came out of Bible school kind of thinking I had Christianity wired, man. I'd been studying God's word intensely. 
for a long period of time. And, and, and it, it, I, I like to say that over the next few years, rather than thinking I had Christianity wired, God was doing a major rewiring on me. Because I would sit in the classroom when they'd warm, knowledge puffs up, and think, ah, I'm glad that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> and it already had. Point is, keep his love and his desire to bless right in front of you always. As you do this, regardless, understand, we go through tough circumstances. Every one of us does. Uh, and if you're not going through tough circumstances now, uh, you're probably just coming out of some or you're about to go into some, but we all go through it. Avoid dogma, becoming dogmatic in your understanding of God's word. Again, let it be the words of life that, that illuminate Christ in your own heart. Now we're going to get into chapter four. Verse one. <clears throat> now, as they spoke to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So in verse 1, Peter and John, they speak to the people, uh, and as they do that, we see three different groups of people that come to oppose them. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, actually, in verses 1 through 6, there are no less than 11 different groups and individuals uh, who are opposed to these followers of Jesus. I mean, they get right to it and, and the people and the, the leaders get upset. So the priests, and I'm going to go through these, the priests that are mentioned here, they're part of the temple workforce of 240 Levites and 30 priests who were on duty at all times. These guys were, they had rotating shifts. And while all of them were part of the tribe of Levi, now that's the tribe to which God had appointed the priestly duties. Uh, the Levites carried out all the peripheral duties associated with temple operations. They were the guys, they were the mechanics. They were the guys that set up and tore down. They were the guys that made sure that the supplies were there. They were the guys that that uh, were the, the temple force, as we see here. Uh, it, the priests, on the other hand, they were also known as the sons of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. Uh, Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was Israel's first high priest. They had the responsibility of overseeing the daily as well as the annual duties and rituals associated with temple worship. So the Levites, temple operations, or, yeah, and the priests, temple worship. So, uh, and that included, they, they would do daily services, morning and evening, uh, services where they offered sacrifices to atone for sin. Uh, they were charged with carrying out specific offerings and sacrifices as they were prescribed in the law of Moses. They conducted holy convocations during the national feasts and so on. So these guys had a busy calendar. They were busy guys. The high priest, he, he was also, he was the supreme religious leader in Israel. Part of his job was to manage the daily priestly activities. He was the, he was the head honcho for the priests. Uh, but more importantly, his most important function was once a year on the Day of Atonement, we know it as Yom Kippur, where on that day he would re- represent the people to God, ideally, and these guys were corrupt and crooked, but, and we'll get to that. But uh, he, his job would be to represent God to the people and represent the people to God as he went in be- behind the veil in the temple, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, 
to atone first for his own sins, and then he would atone for the sins of the people that were committed in ignorance. Now, as we'll see, this too had degenerated into an elaborate set uh, of empty religious rituals, which were they were designed to profiteer, actually, off the people. And Jesus busted them on it. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. So they had gotten to where they were so exacting that, that they had sort of dropped people out of it. The fact that God loves people and he wanted to use them to extend his love to the people, that wasn't how it went. They wanted to make a profit and they could really care less about the common man. Now, as we move through this, we look at the captain of the temple. We see in First Chronicles 26 that certain families from among the Levites uh, had been appointed as gatekeepers. Uh, and this, again, this is part of the temple operations side. Uh, and here at Herod's temple, these gatekeepers essentially served as the temple's police department. Uh, you didn't want to defund that police force. But it, it, they were known as the temple guard, and, and it was a separate policing entity than what the Romans had, because the Romans had, obviously, Israel being a captive nation, the Romans were the one who ultimately uh, dealt out justice. But these guys had their own people for the temple and for the temple precincts and all that. It was their job to maintain order, to stand watch. Uh, they separated the day and the night into four watches, each one. Uh, and they protected the temple's property. They also protected the priests, uh, as well as policing those visiting the temple. Part of their job was to ensure that no unclean person came in and defiled the temple grounds. <laughs> they, they had a lot to do. There were 24 stations, and I, I want you to understand this. I'm drawing this picture because I want you to understand what's happening here with Peter and John is something that comes about because these people are already present. There were 24 stations, 24 locations throughout the Temple Mount. And um, these guys were stationed at each one. Uh, by the way, this is the same group that accompanied the Romans and the religious leaders when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane just two months before and arrested Jesus. We're told that the, the captain of the temple, the temple guard was present there as well. Now, the captain of the temple was essentially the chief of police. <laughs> Again, look at that, kind of relating it to how our understanding works. He was the guy, his job was to rotate from station to station, make sure that the men were, first of all, staying awake, <laughs> and also that they were doing their jobs. So four of these stations were located in the inner courts of the sanctuary itself, which was right adjacent to the beautiful gate. So both priests and Levites would be present. The temple guard and, and the priests would have been stationed right there together. So when Peter begins to speak, it gets these guys' attention. Uh, remember, they'd entered right there, excuse me a sec, um, at the gate beautiful to the temple. And, and, and these men would essentially have just been right across the street. So as this huge crowd gathers in Solomon's portico uh, because of the miracle which had occurred with the lame man who was no longer lame, Luke mentions that among the officials who came to arrest Peter and John were members of a sect called the Sadducees. That's the last of these three groups I want to talk about. 
And now the Sadducees were a small religious sect that was uh, among the Jews. Now, let me give you a little background on the Sadducees because it will really help you to understand what's going on here. There were 400 years between the time that Malachi prophesied at the close of the Old Testament and the time that John the Baptist came onto the scene at the beginning of the New Testament. It's still the Old Testament. John the Baptist is known as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But after that 400 years of silence, John the Baptist comes on the scene. It was during that 400 years that the Hellenizing or the Greekizing of the known world had taken place. Greek thought, Greek culture had been just, it had permeated their society and it was promoted throughout the empire. During this time, uh, and there was also, and, and I don't have time to go into it, there's a great persecution that broke out. Uh, one of the generals uh, that took over the area that controlled Palestine uh, from uh, Alexander the Great, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a bad dude. I mean, he made Hitler look like a nice guy. He was absolutely horribly against the Jews. But again, that's for another time. But during this time, there were a couple of of religious parties that arose in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You could look at at, at it as the conservatives and the liberals, because that's exactly how they were. The Pharisees stood in stark contrast to their aloof, temple-focused Sadducean counterparts. They, they were opposed to one another. So while the Sadducees were Hellenistic, they promoted Greek thought, Greek culture, and they incorporated that into the worship. Uh, the Pharisees were staunchly opposed to Greek influence and held to the centuries-old traditions of the Hebrews. So there was, there was conflict there. The Pharisees also believed in spirits, angels, the resurrection, and the coming Messiah and his kingdom on earth. And that put them in direct conflict, direct opposition with the Sadducees. The Pharisees also held to an ultra-literal interpretation of the law, uh, the law of Moses. And they had, they really, they had begun well. Uh, yet over time, they had decayed, as I mentioned, into a, a hollow, rules-driven, man-centered form of Judaism, which is that which was practiced in the first century in Israel. So while the Sadducees were liberal in their tolerance for and acceptance of Hellenism, uh, they were, it's really, it's, uh, it's odd because they were strangely conservative when it came to the interpretation of the law of Moses. Uh, the Sadducees held to, they held to a strict, very literal interpretation of the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And they accepted only the authority of the Torah, even to the exclusion of the writings of the prophets. They didn't go there. They were, were about the first five books and that's it. They're kind of like the, the King James only group. <laughs> have you ever talked? There, there are people that say, well, it's King James only. And I, I'm not going to make, uh, have a beef with that, but it's like, okay, well, there's other translations that are really good. <laughs> have, do what you like. But they were very, very strict in their interpretation. So strict that because uh, certain doctrines didn't exist in the Torah that did exist in the prophets, um, they denied the existence of angels. They denied the spiritual realm. They denied the resurrection. 
And that's how it came about that they were absolutely incensed as Peter was speaking here. Um, but as a result, the Sadducees were the theological liberals of their day and they rejected any notion of the supernatural. Uh, they were adamantly against the resurrection. So remember, at the end of chapter 2, we read that on the day of, from the day of Pentecost forward that the apostles were going to the temple every day. So when the when the, the creepy religious guys, that's what I like to call them, when they get upset on this day, it's not because it's something, they had been putting up with this for a while. And this is sort of the breaking point for them. They're like, they're in a place of going, okay, I've had it. I've been listening to these guys go on and on about the resurrection. We know that that doesn't exist, and then pretty soon they break. Um, <laughs> no doubt the apostles were preaching Jesus himself as having resurrected. They would also be preaching that one day he would resurrect his people from the dead. <laughs> and we can, we understand it. We know this because as we've read in the book of Acts, every time that Peter opens his mouth, that's what comes out. He's saying, look, you crucified the Lord. Uh, you, yeah, and he rose from the dead. Peter understands what the Apostle Paul would later, uh, years later, elaborate on in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, if you preach a gospel without the resurrection, <laughs> you're not preaching the gospel. Uh, it falls apart. Uh, Paul there says, if Jesus didn't resurrect, we've been running in vain. Our faith is worthless. So there are two things going on here that would have set the Sadducees' teeth on edge. The first is that the apostles had performed a profound miracle upon a man who had been, no doubt, lame from birth. Indisputable. He's running around. He's jumping around in front of them. The second is, is as we read in chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter speaks to the crowd. He says, and he flatly proclaims that they had killed the prince of life whom God had raised from the dead. And these guys went, can't stand it. And then in the last verse, as I read a few minutes ago, he declares the resurrection again. He says, to you, Israel, first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you. So it's for these two reasons that the Sadducees were, as we see in verse 2, greatly distressed. That's why they had had enough. They were not going to put up with this one more minute. This man's miraculous healing had seriously challenged their theology. Well, guess what? Sometimes our theology is challenged. And, and where do we go when that's the case? We consult the word of God. Because it's not about my opinion. It's not about what I think. It's what does God's word tell us? In context, you can, if you go out of context, if you guys know me, I, I, I do not like hearing teachings that are done out of context and to go to an extreme, if, if I were there to just say things, I could go to the Old Testament and prove to you that God is a bird. It says he's going to take me up under his wings. So, I mean, silliness. That's Again, that's extreme. But there are subtle heresies that get peddled around out there, out of context, that can really trip us up. We've got to be careful. Uh, I like to teach from four different contexts. When I study I look at the cultural context, I look at the historical context, I look at the textual context, and I look at the contextual context. And if those don't agree, 
I'm not going to teach it. So really important there. So these guys get challenged. Their response, they could have done one of two things. They could believe, wow, my theology has been challenged. I see this guy jumping around. I see a miracle just took place in front of my eyes. Or they could choose not to. And what did these guys do? They called the cops. (laughs) Literally, that's what they did. They called for the temple guard. They said, come on, let's get these guys arrested. Get them out of here. And that's exactly what happened. Amazing to me. I look at the, you think about, you talk about what happens when, when spiritual blindness takes place in a person's life. I mean, the, the Bible tells us that, that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And guess what? That's not automatic. It's not the devil made me do it. I cooperate with that. And these guys are cooperating with the spiritual blindness. They did not want to see it. La, 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 la. No, it didn't happen. I don't see it. I don't have it. Call the cops. Get these guys out of here. And that's what they do. Verse 3. And they laid hands on them. And I want to (laughs) include here, not in a good way. We like to lay hands on people here. Not like that. (laughs) They, They grabbed them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, in chapter 3, we read that Peter and John, when they'd entered the temple, that it was the ninth hour. As I mentioned, it's 3 in the afternoon. It's late in the day, but these guys are saying, you know what? We're not going to wait. Let's, let's get these guys arrested. Let's drag them off the temple courts, and let's get them in, into a cell where we can deal with this tomorrow. That's what they do. Now, the emphasis, again, in the original indicates that they abruptly stopped and forcibly seized Peter and John, and by the way, the lame guy too. We see him in court the next day. We'll get to that. So their attitude was that of having had enough. <laughs> in, in their own minds, these men were teaching dangerous ideas because they really believed what they believed. I mean, I've shared with you many times, you will always act on what you believe. If you don't believe that the resurrection is a thing, and these guys are teaching the resurrection, guess what? You're, and if you have, if you're in a position of authority, these guys are acting on what they believe. Get them out of here. Get them arrested. We don't want to hear that. They're polluting this crowd with, with these strange ideas. Also worth noting again that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were bitter enemies. And something interesting about this is the fact it's, it's like getting the most liberal Democrat <laughs> and teaming them up with the most conservative Republican. And I'm not going to get all political on you, but it's just a, as an example, because both of them utterly disdain the message these men are, are spreading. They uh, they don't like it. And so therefore they're together on this when they didn't agree on anything. It reminded me, uh, there's an ancient proverb, it's questionable origin. It, some say it came from India. Some say it's an Arabian proverb, which says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what's going on here. They didn't agree on much. But the gospel was a threat to both. And they were quite unified in their hatred of it and their hatred of these men. Verse 4 However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. I'd love to see that at the end of a church service. Well, got to have 5,000. But notice, they heard the word and believed. You know, that's exactly what we've talked about when we talk about and we look at the purpose of miracles, signs, and wonders. 
they validate, they validate, they attest to the message and the messenger. And that is the only purpose that they have. It is never to put on a show. And I, oh, my heart is grieved when I look and I see the nonsense that goes on out there in the name of the Holy Spirit of God. Miracles never saved anybody. Jesus said, this generation seeks after a sign and none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, he would resurrect from the dead. So the progression here is first the miracle and then the message and then the challenge. Do you believe it? In Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people had gotten saved. And here, his second sermon, you see about 5,000. I, 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 my heart yearns, again, for revival, that people's hearts would wake up, people outside the church, people inside the church, to see the very real aspect of what it is to be a disciple of Christ and to walk it out in our lives, often at great personal expense. The bottom line is here we see the very real thing that Jesus had warned repeatedly about when he was walking with his men. He said, you will be persecuted. You will have tribulation. He says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And here now these men are experiencing that very thing that he had warned them about. What do you mean? I thought that God loved me and he had a wonderful plan for my life. Yeah, well, it's probably not going to look like your plan for your life. And it didn't for these guys. They didn't get up that morning and think, hey, let's go to let's go preach at the temple and end up in jail. But that's what happened. And God knew it. And God was working his purposes through it. Something else. How long did it take? (laughs) This is. Peter's second sermon, the second one that's recorded, he may have had others, but the second one that's recorded for us, and they're already getting a lot of pushback from people. Didn't take long. Another thing about this, it's always interesting to me that persecution wasn't coming primarily from the secular world, from their society. Almost all of the persecution that Jesus warned about would come from a religious source. Interesting. And Jesus had said as much. In in John chapter 16, uh, verses 2 through 4, we read uh, Jesus saying here, they will put you out of the synagogues. (laughs) Yes. And the time will come that uh, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. And these things they'll do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But when these, but these things I've told you that when, not if, when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Interesting. I look out at the religious landscape in our world and truly nothing has changed. Uh, preparing for this morning's message, I, uh, I looked at a World Watch. There's a, a group called World Watch. They put out a map uh, with the 50 nations that have the most severe persecution of Christians and the church. And, and I was reading through that list of countries, and they're listed from high to very high to extreme levels of persecution. And nearly every nation 
as I read through the list, uh, was a nation that was uh, where the persecution was coming from a religious source. Mostly from radical Islam, I might mention. Added to that, and, and, and I believe this is in our society, in nations where persecution is light, because most of us really, I mean, <laughs> I, I remember as a young Christian, my brother yelled at me, and I thought, I'm being persecuted. I was like, oh, come on, John, that wasn't persecution, that was your brother being your brother. But truly, we have light persecution here, but many people are being willfully led away from the truth of God's word. Uh, the Bible tells us they have itching ears. They accumulate them to themselves teachers according to their own lusts. Just as dangerous, perhaps more dangerous than, than frontal persecution in our lives is to begin to wander, to drift, either whether it, it is into religious dogma or it is simply wanting to have somebody tell me what I want to hear, wanting to have a nice, comfortable you know, Christianity, where I've got God in my little box here, and I can do with him as I, w- as I wish. Folks, there are things out there that are designed by the enemy himself to take us down. And we need to be mindful of it. It's not just persecution. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, We're not like the many who peddle the word of God. Now, that word many there means many to the most part. He says, we're not like the majority who peddle the word of God. He says, but we preach from sincerity. That was true in the first century. It's true today. What happened to these men as a result of the Sadducees refusing to acknowledge that what was plainly visible in front of them uh, with this man being healed is that which happens in countless lives today. I don't want to believe it. I stick my fingers in my ears. I'm not going to look at it. I don't want to do any business with it. I just want to deflect the message. I pray that as God's word goes out, that his seed, his word is a seed that falls on hearts that are fertile enough to let that take root. Verse five, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, now we remember these men from just two months earlier because many of them were the same ones that were there when Jesus had been placed on trial before them. Uh, he goes on and says, And John and Alexander and as many as were of the family of the high priest, uh, these were gathered together at Jerusalem. So interestingly here, it names Annas, Luke names Annas as the high priest. He wasn't the high priest, but... Don't let that trip you up. There is a a good explanation. Annas had been the high priest until the year 15 AD. And he was defrocked. He he got fired by the Romans. They removed him from office. However, the people in Israel looked at the high priest very much like we look at a Supreme Court justice. That is a position that you're posted to for life. And so they didn't care what Rome said. Annas didn't have to be the high priest. In Rome's eyes, but in their eyes, he still was because they looked at it as a lifetime position. So very reasonable that Luke would write it this way. Now, um, over the years, Annas had, he was a very powerful, very wealthy man, very corrupt man, crooked as could be. Uh, and uh, he had uh, arranged for five of his sons, as well as his son-in-law, whose name was Caiaphas, uh, 
to be the high priest at one time or another. Now, they had built a family business out of this, which in, if you were to put it into today's currency, it would have been worth many millions of dollars. I mean, this was a very big machine that they had put together. Uh, these were the men, and this is the business. Uh, they called it Annas's Bazaar uh, when they had the feast, especially Passover and all, where the people had to come. And it's like you had to have the shekel of the sanctuary. Your currency is not good here. It's unclean. You have to exchange it. Oh, by, by the way, here's the exchange rate. Exorbitant. Or no, your, your doves or your lamb or your kid goat or whatever it is that you want to offer as a sacrifice. Oh, by the way, here's a blemish. It's not good enough. You got to buy ours. Oh, and, and here's the price. These guys were raking it in. And they were raking it in on the backs of the people. And Jesus talked about this. He talked about the business these guys had developed when he came in and drove out the money changers and overturned the tables of the guys that were selling the animals, accusing them of turning his father's house into a den of merchandise. And they had. So that's the list of guys that these guys get drugged before. As Peter and John and the, the, the formerly lame guy uh, are, are brought before the council. Now, under Roman domination, Rome had appointed a, it's called a puppet government. That's where you put your own guys in charge because it's easier for the people if you have people that are puppets of Rome. They're, they're Jews, but they do Rome's bidding. And that puppet, puppet government was called the Sanhedrin. And it was a ruling council. It was made up of 71 of the most powerful men in all of Israel. These guys had a lot of power. They had a lot of pull. So catch the scene here. <laughs> these guys, they're standing there, and into their midst comes these two fishermen from Galilee. you got to understand, we've talked about it before. In their minds, these guys would be total hicks. <laughs> they were just uneducated, and we'll talk about that next week. Um, they and, and they were really looked down upon from the northern province uh, when they were down here in Jerusalem, where the 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 white collar guys were, these were blue collar guys thrust into this whole scene, and they're brought before the most highly educated and most powerful men in the entire nation. Now, the room where the council met, <laughs> it was intimidating, and it was laid out to be intimidating. It was laid out in a semicircle. It was lined with seats in two tiers. There were two tiers of seats that the men would sit down in, and it, all of the seats faced the center of the room. So think about it. Bringing in these two fishermen and, and this formerly lame guy, I wish we knew his name, but one day we will, uh, you'd think that they would have been so intimidated that they would have just caved and said, okay, you know, whatever you say. But remember, these guys are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that would have been to underestimate the power of the Spirit. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Interesting question. Peter and John and the lame guy, they're put in the middle of the room to be examined now by the Sanhedrin. And I want to note something here. The purpose of this was not to get at the truth. These guys knew the truth. But that's not what they want to do. Instead, they call for a formal inquiry and a legal, this is a legal proceeding. Uh, the miracle itself, it could not be denied. 
So their initial question was really carefully crafted and it was worded in such a way as to imply that the the apostles may have drawn upon an ungodly source as far as the power that they used uh, in doing this miracle, such as a false god or if they had employed sorcery, which was popular in those days. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 8 in Acts uh, or some other thing. So they're trying to trip them up. They're trying to legally wrangle with them now at this point. So their question has two parts. The per- first part asks, what kind of power did you use? The second part is, who sent you to do this? Interesting. So to do something in someone's name meant that you were acting in another person's authority. We've talked about that. When Jesus says, ask something in my name. We want to ask something in his authority, consistent with his character and his nature. Same thing. Now, what it's saying here is someone sent you uh, and you were there to represent someone else. Now, the obvious answer to their question should have been who but God could do such a thing, but that's not where they go. However, they ignored that fact in hopes of finding something. Uh, in the apostles' answer through which they might accuse them of a crime. And that's what they're doing. This is their corruption totally unveiled. In Deuteronomy, uh, I want to look at something else here. In Deuteronomy, God had declared that if a prophet does a miracle, that miracle itself is not an indication as to whether or not it was from God. He says there's a test. Well, you think, well, if it was a miracle, wouldn't it be from God? Not necessarily. The devil can do miracles, Satan can imitate anything except for regeneration, the imparting of life. So what was needed if a miracle was done was to conduct an inquiry and ask the people performing the miracle, in what name are you doing this? That's what these guys are doing. If their response was anything that would lead God's people into the worship of anyone or anything other than the worship of God, that person would be declared a false prophet. That's right out of the book of Deuteronomy. So essentially what the council is doing here, even with creepy motives, which is true, they're doing their job. They're doing exactly as the law prescribed. A miracle has been done and nobody could deny it and they knew it. Their responsibility was to make an inquiry as to by what power and in whose name was the miracle done. This is where it gets interesting. Because they think they've got him. They think that they're they're controlling this thing. And we're going to see in, in just a few moments that Peter takes the whole thing and he flips it right back onto them. All of a sudden, they're the ones who are being examined. They're the ones who are on trial. They're the ones who are being judged. Uh, I love the way that this plays out. I mean, nobody but God could engineer this because they think they've got them. They're the guys in control. They're the guys with the power. Got a couple of fishermen up here. And then verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So before Luke tells us what Peter's going to say, he wants them and us to know that the Holy Spirit himself was the source of the words and the power through which Peter was going to speak. Now, I also want to say, and it's worth noting here, that as Peter formally addresses (laughs) the Sanhedrin, that he does it with respect and tact. Look at at the wording here. He says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. I mean, he addresses them respectfully and formally. 
Um, Proverbs 15.1, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this morning. Uh, it tells us a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So that's one angle. I mean, I think that what's true here also is these guys are in authority. Whether they are corrupt and godless or not is another thing. Um, you know, I, I may have issues with our president, but I also recognize the office that he is in, that kind of a thing. And he recognizes these guys are the guys in, in charge. They're the ones in power and he treats them accordingly. You know, I, I think about a soft answer turning away wrath and harsh words stirs up anger. That's an, you know, this is, this is personal in my life. The Lord's used this passage in Proverbs many times uh, with me. And I'm, I'm certainly not there yet, but I'm learning that a soft answer indeed does turn away wrath. I don't want to stir it up. I have a, a dear friend and mentor who, who since has gone to be with the Lord, told me many years ago, he said, John, it's better to be kind than it is to be right. And so often when we're having discourse with someone and, and something, some conflict, potential conflict begins to arise, I can get my back up and pretty soon I'm just going in there because I want to be right. And how often the Lord has used this verse to back me off and, and for me to choose, I need to just simply be kind. Verse 9, if, he says, if we this day, Peter going on here, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. So he begins by telling them, if look, if you're judging us, if you're accusing us of doing a good deed for a guy that's been lame, then we're guilty. <laughs> that's it. You've got us. And Peter, though, now emboldened by the Holy Spirit, he answers their two-part question, but he answers it in reverse. He starts out with, um, by whose name? And then he goes on to the power through which it was done. Verse 10, he says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there he goes again, every time he opens his mouth, that's what he's reminding them of, he says, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Oh, I'll bet the Sadducees love to hear that. By him, this man stands here before you whole. You know, I can only imagine the response of the religious creepy guys sitting there in their two tiers of, of seats, looking at them. And the looks on some of their faces and seeing their jaws clamped down, the neck stick, or the veins stick out on their neck as Peter is just essentially poking them right in the nose. Saying, look, you killed him. And, and he, he says, you want to know whose name we've done this in? Let me tell you whose name it is. And, and you want to know whose power was done in? It was done in, by the power of the one who has the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I, I, again, I, I just, it does the, the text, I wish that, that Luke wrote and the guys were really ticked when they heard that, but he doesn't. But we can imagine that their response was pretty, pretty severe. Also, I want to remind us that it, I, I mentioned a couple of studies ago that, that to remember that Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's his title. 
And Peter is very, very specific in this. He's declaring this miracle had been done in the name of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. They didn't like that either. At this point, he flips the trial around and he's now putting the religious leaders on trial. With his response, he just does this whole thing and pretty soon the focus is not on them anymore. It's on the people that were there sitting in that room in their pomp and in in their arrogance and with their power, their worldly power. And he totally flips the script. In case there's any doubt in their minds, the Jesus he was talking about was the one that they had been personally responsible for murdering, for crucifying. (laughs) Again, I just look at, I imagine the looks on their faces. Um, So now, as they're the ones being examined, uh, this trial is it's certainly not going the way that they had planned. It's not going their way. it's, It's been totally turned around. Now, the other thing I want to think about, and I want to remember here, the, the, again, the text doesn't tell us what's going on with the lame guy, but he's there in the middle of the room with the two guys. What, I, I picture him being like at a tennis match. You know, this is like, okay, they're saying this and Peter's saying that. And it's like, he's just, see, all he can think of is, I'm just glad I can walk. That's it. These guys, yeah, they, they did what they did. And, and, and yeah, you guys can deal with all this stuff. But Peter now, he presses them (laughs) as he boldly announces God's verdict on this group of judges. He now quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. That's what we call it. He quotes the Psalms there. And remember, Jesus had quoted the same passage to warn some of the same guys that were sitting here that they were fighting against God's Messiah. Verse 11, here's the the quote from the Psalm. Uh, He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders. We sang that song this morning, which has become the chief cornerstone. So Peter not only quotes the verse, but adds the explanation to be clear as to its true meaning. He said, he's the stone which was rejected, referring to Jesus. And then he added, by you. So they would have no doubt that he was referring to them as the guilty builders. Like I said, he flips it around. Uh, under the, the inspiration, by the power of the Holy Spirit, these guys are, they're, I can only imagine, they were speechless. And they were truly astonished. We'll look at that next week. They're going, these are uneducated and untrained men. What is going on here? So let's beat them up. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Not only, at first they call the cops and then they beat them up. So that's their answer. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, finally, he, he tells him that Jesus was Israel's chief cornerstone. Uh, he's saying that he was their Messiah. That's the chief cornerstone. That's what that meant in the, in the prophets. And that he was the one who would someday rule the nation and judge them. So what began as a formal inquiry to see if Peter and John had committed a religious crime had now turned into a spiritual trial in which the apostles were pronouncing God's verdict on the leaders of the nation for refusing to acknowledge their Messiah. This is just amazing to me. I mean, you look at the the way this is turned around. In verse 12, Peter wraps up. He's saying, you want to know whose name this is? I'll tell you whose name this is. You want to know what power we did this by? I'll tell you what power we did this by. And then he, he wraps it up by saying in verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other. Uh, for there's no other name, zero, 
This is it. I'm giving you the name, guys. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here Peter continues to answer their question. Not only was this miracle performed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he tells him salvation comes from nobody else. There's no other name. That's it. He's the end of it. There's nothing else under heaven. There's nothing given among men other than the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth through which men must be saved. Tell that to a person who has just proclaimed to you that all roads lead to God. It's not all roads. Well, Pastor John, that's a narrow statement. You bet it is. And Jesus said it was narrow. He said, narrow is the path that leads to life. Broad is the highway that leads to destruction. Yes, salvation is a very narrow thing and it only comes one way. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He wasn't saying, I'm a way, a way. I'm one of many ways. I, I'm, I, am, I am one of many my truths. I hear people say, well, my truth is like, well, okay, fine. What is the truth? Folks, stand strong in the fact that the gospel is narrow. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. It's very specific. It says, you either believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God, and there's no other name, there's no other way, there's no other ideology, there's no other false theology, whatever that is, or not. But oh, the blessings that he has in store for those that will just acknowledge that. I want to correct a little bit of weird teaching on this before we wrap up. <laughs> now, in this statement, there's, he was not saying that all those who had died prior to hearing the gospel are lost. Again, that's a study for another time. But God had made provision. I like to think of it as those faithful saints in the Old Testament died on credit. Looking forward. He's also not saying that those who had never heard Jesus' name so that they could call upon it, uh, were by that fact alone lost. <laughs> That's silliness. You can't distill the things of God to a nifty little formula and pronounce either death or life to someone. Yes, is the gospel narrow? Absolutely it is. But God makes provision. He says, you know what? What about the people that never heard and couldn't hear? He says creation itself attests. Again, you got to consult God's word on this stuff. People come up with goofy ideas sometimes. But what he was telling, saying, was he was telling Israel's leaders, and for that matter, humanity itself, that Jesus is God's promised Savior. He's the one. There's no other. That's it. He's the resurrected king who has already ascended to the Father's right hand. And he's explaining to these guys that the Messiah from whom Israel had waited. They waited. They had been waiting for him. And he's saying, look, guys, you can't claim ignorance any longer. You know, yeah, you can kick us around. You can arrest us rather than believe the miracle. You can beat us up. You can do whatever you want. But you can't claim ignorance. You're responsible for what you know. That applies to us. 
they must make a decision. That also applies to us. If there's anyone here or anyone online that's watching that has not made that singular decision to receive Christ, to receive Jesus as Lord, to recognize him as the sent one of God, to know there's no other name under heaven through which a man or a woman could be saved, then I want to invite you, do that. Don't wait. Time is short. I was talking to someone before the service. Today is, uh, by some calendars, today is Pentecost. Now, we talked about that when we looked at the National Feast in Israel where God did profound things and he stuck and he would fulfill. Like the first time was when he came down Mount Sinai and 3,000 people died. And then Pentecost being celebrated, Peter goes out and he preaches 3,000 people come to life. I mean, that's not a mistake. And and I think, oh, Lord, you know, I would, I told, told them, I said, wouldn't it be cool if we didn't get to the end of the service and we heard the horn, you know, the, the sound of the trumpet? And, you know, the, the trumpet of the archangel and pronouncing and, and all of a sudden we're out of here. There's, there's sort of a rhythm with other pastors that I deal with, other Christians that, um, and yeah, people have been making the claim that time is short since Jesus left. I mean, part of the New Testament was written to encourage people because Jesus hadn't come back yet. The whole purpose of the book of Hebrews People were really discouraged. What do you mean? He's, you said he's coming back. He hasn't come back yet. Well, let me encourage you. Hang in there. Hold on. But I do believe he's coming back soon. And I think that we're in an age and things are aligned in such a way that folks, he never put the emphasis on when he was coming back. He put the emphasis on the fact that he calls upon us, his people, to be ready for his soon return.